Our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 12 through to chapter 3, verse 18. And you'll find that on page 1120 of your pew Bibles. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one... We are an aroma that brings death to the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity, as those sent from God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read, it has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. 
Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you bless this reading of your word. We thank you for your scriptures, for the truth that you have um, passed to us through um, your servants. We pray now for your servant, Pastor Mark, and we thank you for the message that you have laid on his heart. We just ask that you will give him uh, strength and um, courage and clarity of thought and clarity of word and that um, he will speak to us um, and that we will have ears to hear and to understand and to apply what uh, what he has to tell us lord we ask that you be with us now amen thank you kate before we get started or as we get started i should say i'd like to just take a moment to thank you Bethesda Church for standing by our family over the last couple of months. They have been exhausting, to say the least. Um, In January, Shelley had a a tragedy in her office that she was required to respond to, even as she grieved the uh, circumstances and the person lost in that event. In February, a life-threatening situation with her dad required her attention, so she left and was there for three weeks, got back last Sunday afternoon, and then, as you know, we've been praying for my sister Cheryl, who has kidney cancer and is waiting for a surgery date. She meets with a surgeon later this week, so hopefully she'll have the date by then. But, but I do just want to say thank, thank you to all of you for your love and your support and your compassion uh, for us. Thanks very much to the number of you who cooked meals for us over the last few weeks, and especially to Michelle Hooker, who coordinated the assistance effort. Appreciated that very much. Um, And that was very helpful over the last three weeks that Shelley was in South Carolina with her family. Her dad is home now and doing much better, and we talked to him yesterday, and, and Cheryl is awaiting a surgery date. So from my family to yours, thank you very much, and we love you too. This morning, we take a deliberate and decisive turn from the usual as we go through the familiar motions for yet another worship gathering on yet another Sunday morning in a nearly unbroken series of Sunday mornings over nearly 80 years now. And that turn, that deliberate and decisive turn, is to the greatest event ever in the history of the world. Maybe I should, also, should actually say events, because there wasn't only one event. There were two earth-shattering, eternity-changing, greatest events ever in the history of the world. I'm speaking, of course, about the shocking yet saving events surrounding the life, ministry, arrest, trial, and execution of Jesus Christ on, about, on or about 
April 3rd, 33 AD, which is followed by the equally shocking yet justifying resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So it's a deliberate and decisive turn toward Easter. You might find interesting, if, as I do, that nowhere in the scriptures are we instructed to remember the manner of Jesus' birth. In fact, only two of the four Gospels say anything at all about it. But the whole of scripture, including Old Testament prophetic passages beforehand, insists that we never, never, ever forget, one, who Jesus Christ was and is, two, his perfect life lived in total righteousness, three, the brutal manner of his death, and four, his resurrection from the dead. That God the Son took on flesh, became a human being, and did so miraculously in his virgin birth is essential. It's biblical, it's historical, it's factual, and it's Christmas. But the historical fact of Jesus' perfectly righteous life qualified him to offer himself, and he did offer himself, as the perfectly satisfactory substitute for, quoting now, Yuri already, already said it earlier this morning, the sins of the whole world, according to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2. This is the reason he did all those things. He came to die that we might live. And not only for this temporary material and lesser life on this earth, but on into eternal life. And they all, these things, they all, Jesus' true identity as God the Son and the Word made flesh, his perfect life lived in total righteousness before God his Father, the brutal manner of his unjust yet justifying death and displaying the deadliness of sin, and his bodily resurrection from the dead, all of these add up to a full and final fulfillment of God the Father's will to save rather than to condemn. In Christ, we live. Indeed, the redemption of the whole creation from the corrosion of sin and the consequences of death depends on those things, all of them, happening in precisely the way the Bible lays them out. Jesus came, Jesus lived, Jesus died, and Jesus was raised. Amen. So it's an eternity-altering turn that we're, take, that we're making that will take us all the way from Bethesda Church, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, in February 2024, to Palestine in April of 33 AD. And for all of us, then, for all of us, it will mean a turning away from God's righteous wrath and judgment against sin and all that is evil, and into his holy love, good purpose, and sovereign favor. Now, I was tempted to stop right there, pray for us all, and dismiss you for lunch until next Sunday. I mean, what are you going to do? Fire me? I've already fired myself. But I'm still not that brave, so I do hope you'll keep your Bibles open to 2 Corinthians 2 and 3 as we look at two significant passages from both of those important chapters. Now, as a part of this turn that we are taking toward Easter, I'd like to offer over the next five Sundays, beginning today, 
a series of messages and worship themes from 2 Corinthians entitled, The Love of God Realized Fully and Finally in Christ Jesus. Okay, so I've missed a couple of slides here, so I've got to catch up with myself. There it is. The love of God realized fully and finally in Christ Jesus. And our focal text is there on the, on the screen. You'll see there, for the love of God compels us. The NIV says controls us, I think. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So that's where we're headed. We should arrive there in Second Corinthians chapter 5 in about three weeks' time, I think. And overall, we'll be taking a survey approach to the text. And what I mean by that is it's not purely expository in the sense that we'll not take every verse along the way. We don't have that much time in five weeks, but the big truths of it we'll try to pick up along our way. And today, we're in 2 Corinthians 2 and 3 with a sermon title, which is a real question for all of us this morning. Well, I don't know where it is. I, I must have... Oh, there it is. Is your purpose God's purpose for your life? I shortened it so it would fit on the page. But it could say more fully, is your purpose for your life God's purpose for your life? And our central truth of the message is, Jesus Christ died and was raised that we be transformed into his true people, not to continue or establish a new religion. Jesus Christ died and was raised that we, that you, that I, that we as his people be transformed into his true people, not to continue or establish a new religion. Now, I want you to know, I didn't add that parenthetical part, not to continue or establish a new religion, arbitrarily. Admittedly, it is a pet peeve of mine, as you will know, but the weakness of religion to save anyone, even God's covenant people, is here in our text that Kate read a little bit ago, namely in chapter 3. But rather, I want us to know that the veil of unbelief is only removed in Christ by Christ. So we can be thinking about our own standing before God as individuals and as a church. Or are we hoping that somehow our religion will get us a pass? Or do we realize that we are helpless and hopeless apart from God's sovereign love, mercy, and grace Delivered on our behalf by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus really is God's only answer. So as we contemplate our text for this morning, I'd like for us to think about this this truth first of all. Jesus Christ died and was raised so that we might become, quoting here the text, the fragrance of the knowledge of of him everywhere, and I added, everywhere we go. Hmm. Now to our text. Read with me. Just follow along as I read, beginning in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. But thanks be to God, 
who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Is that your purpose for your life? It doesn't have to be worded that way. It could be worded very differently. This is metaphor, mostly. But is that, being God's witness, being a one that exudes God's presence as you walk into a room, as you walk into a workplace, as you walk into the mall, as you walk into to, to someone's home, are we the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ? Is that our purpose? Well, it looks a little bit like in this text that that's what Paul's saying, that that was his purpose, and that is, I think, more generally, the purpose for all those who follow after Christ. Isn't that what he says? But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us, I don't think he's using the royal we there, I think he's talking about all Christians, all followers of Jesus, through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Is that our purpose for the worship, life, prayer, teaching, witness, ministry, and fellowship of Bethesda Church? Do we desire and are we committed to become, quoting here now, the fragrance of the knowledge of Jesus Christ everywhere? I just love the way that sounds, actually. And did we notice that the context for this assertion is Paul's concern and uncertainty as to where or how his young Christian friend, partner, fellow missionary, and pastor Titus of Crete was? Where did he go? He didn't find him in Troas as he expected to, so he went on to Macedonia, right? But Paul reminds himself and us that no matter his or our present circumstances, we are triumphant in Christ Jesus. Even if we lose in this life, we win in the end and for eternity. Even if we lose our lives, we win in eternity. So Paul marched into Macedonia, not like a military march on procession, but he had the Lord Jesus with him. So who could be against him, he says in Romans chapter 8. He, he marched into Macedonia like he owned the place. But not out of pride or arrogance or any measure of presumption, but because God in Christ Jesus' purpose for his life had become Paul's purpose for his own life, as well as Titus's and the Corinthian churches. He literally could not lose, and neither can we. If God's purpose for our life and the ministry of the church we're a part of becomes our purpose, that is, if we endeavor to become, quoting now, the fragrance of the knowledge of God in Christ Jesus everywhere we go. Even so, we want to be careful here, or, or perhaps the better word would be realistic. We must understand that to stand with Jesus Christ is to stand against the rest of the world. I'm sorry, but that is the message of the scriptures from Genesis to Exodus, uh, from Genesis to Revelation, also in Exodus, but Genesis to Revelation. To stand with Christ is to stand against the rest of the world. But even if we die serving God's sovereign and good purpose for us, we win. So Jesus Christ died and was raised so that we might become the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere we go. A second thing that I think we can think about here this morning without too much trouble is that Jesus died and was raised that we might become, quoting here now, the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and the stench of death to those who are perishing. 
Look with me at verses 15 and 16a. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, to those who are being saved, to those who are perishing, rather, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, those who are being saved, a fragrance from life to life. This is one of the many wonderful and awful paradoxes of the Christian faith and the Christian life. To those God is drawing to himself, or to put it in Paul's language here, to those who are being saved, the love, goodwill, and truth of the Christian faith and life are inviting. They're aromatic. They're beautiful. They're enticing. They're appealing. They're convincing. But to those who are perishing, there is a visceral negative response to Christians, to the Christian faith, to Christian truth, to the Bible, to the Christian life. And I don't say that to judge anybody. There is only one judge and mediator between God and humanity, the, the man, Jesus Christ. But we certainly can tell those, uh, tell who's who and what's what as it relates to our fragrance. Are we the aroma of Christ or the stench of death? Now, n- notice here, it's the same aroma. It's the same fragrance. The difference is not in the fragrance. The difference is in the receiving, the receiving of it. The perceiving of it. Are we the aroma of Christ or the stench of death? If we'll pay attention here, there are very clear implications for our outreach and evangelism efforts. Who's being drawn in? Who's being repelled? Put our effort into those God is drawing to himself. We'll never argue anyone into the kingdom. We'll never drag them, even screaming, uh, up one side and down the other. Only the Lord can bring them. So Jesus died and was raised that we might become the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and the stench of death to those who are perishing. There's a third thing that I'd have us think about as we process this text here this morning and this Easter season. Jesus Christ died and was raised that we might become, quoting here now again, sufficient for these things. And I put in there fundamental fundamentally spiritual things. These are not things that we can do in the flesh. These are not things that we we come, come up with on our own. And he died that we might become sufficient for these things in him, not in our own strength, not in our own abilities, not in our own intellect, but in Christ. Verses 16b and 17 of chapter 2. To one, oh, sorry, he asked the question, who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. Pause here. Even in Paul's time. So he's probably writing this about 30 years or so after Christ's uh, crucifixion, resurrection, and return to the Father. So even at that early point, there were peddlers of God's word. So for almost these entire 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years, there have been people who have been profiting off of God's word rather than preaching it with sincerity and love. So now it shouldn't surprise us to turn on our televisions and see people doing the same thing. And Paul didn't go chasing after them, it doesn't look like, but he did call them out. 
And here he did so, not by name necessarily, he does do that a couple of times, but, but just in general. And, and to make the point, we are not those people who do that. We are coming to you as emissaries of God. We are coming to you out of love. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So when we're talking about or, or dealing with spiritual things, we are not and we will not ever be sufficient, even for the most rudimentary of tasks. However, the scriptures are clear that in Christ and by Christ, God makes us sufficient for all things according to his will and purposes. He always equips us to do what he's called us to do. He never calls us to do anything without actually providing the means by which we can accomplish what he's called us to do. The whole of the Christian life is lived by God's grace through faith, though. We don't get the assignment and then go on our way. We get the assignment and we walk with him as he works through us. And while we're certainly not in and of ourselves sufficient for any of these things, as Paul is saying, Jesus Christ is, and he commissions us, his church, to speak the truth of his gospel and to live it out in such a way as to become and be the aroma of Christ wherever we are. Let's just take a moment to check in with each other. How are we doing? Can you yet say that your purpose for your life is God's purpose for your life? How about it, Bethesda? Can we say that our purpose for our worship, fellowship, and ministry is God's purpose for our worship, fellowship, and ministry? Let's move on now to chapter 3 where we find, I believe, a stunning reversal of fortunes wherein we learn that we are being transformed by God's word and by his spirit into the very image of Jesus Christ in some very real, even eternal ways. And as we do that, I'd like for us to think about it in these terms. Jesus Christ died and was raised so the veil of unbelief could be removed. And we could live in the marvelous truth and the glorious life of God in Christ Jesus. Let's look at it. All the way down to verse 16 of chapter 3. I'll, I'll come back to what comes before it in just a second. But this is the main point that I want us to get here. Verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And what is the veil? The veil is unbelief. So if we jump up to verse 7, I'd really like to jump back up to verse 1, but we don't have that kind of time. Okay, verse 2. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. And so I want you to, to, to take hold of the, the truth about the work of the spirit here from, from here on out to the end of this chapter. It's all about the work of the spirit rather than something that is written on tablets of stone or on tablets, but rather on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. See that? 
who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which is being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had, once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, it might not seem like it yet, but this is one of the most important realities of life and death of earth and heaven. Of today and eternity, we cannot will ourselves to believe. We cannot talk ourselves into believing. We cannot believe because our friends or our family believe. Faith and especially saving faith, is a gift from God grounded in his grace. I know this because I tried it. But as hard as I wanted to believe, and as hard as I tried to believe, the further from believing I seemed to get, I did not have it in me to believe in Jesus Christ. I believed in God in some general, unthreatening, self-imaged way, so long as God or Jesus, or whomever looked and acted pretty much like me, I would get with that. But holy? Righteous? Selfless? Loving? Merciful? Forgiving? Gracious? Not so much. But now, looking back nearly 33 years... I came to Christ on June the 30th, 1991. I was baptized about a month later, and I responded to the call to ministry about a month and several months after that, a year and several months after that. Now I can finally see and understand the truth of this verse, that the veil of unbelief must literally be removed by Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ. No one else can do it. No one else will do it. And, and let's not miss that the particular veil of unbelief Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is talking about here is a religious veil of unbelief. Taking part in a religion about God, such as Judaism in this case in the text in chapter 3, or such as Christianity in our case today, does not make us right with God. Only Jesus Christ can make us right with God. And only Jesus Christ will lift the veil of unbelief, religious or otherwise, from our eyes, from our hearts, and from our minds. And only Jesus Christ can enable us or allow us to believe. And so we must pray. We must pray for ourselves and we must pray for each other. That we will 
believe that Christ will remove the veil of unbelief from our hearts and our minds. There's a fifth, and it's, this is the next to the last point. This is my six-point sermon. No, they didn't teach this in seminary. Jesus Christ died and was raised so the people of God might live in true freedom and live out God's purposes for us brought about by the Holy Spirit. Let's look at verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Now you'll notice that I said in my point there, the true freedom to live out God's purposes for us brought about by the Holy Spirit. True freedom implies intentionally that there is such a thing as false freedom by which we can be deceived into thinking that we are free and we are not. Indeed, every freedom the world would convince us it can give us is false. Every single one. The freedom that the world promises only and always leads to bondage, to selfishness, and ultimately to death, sometimes literal physical death from this life, and always, in the end, ultimately spiritual death. But the freedom that the Spirit gives us is the sort of freedom that enables us to accept and to celebrate the purposes that God intends for us to fulfill. Far beyond anything that we could earn or conceive of or even hope for ourselves or our loved ones. Now, if you would like a proof text or a hundred of God's promises from his word on this topic, I give you the whole Bible. The whole Bible is replete with such promises. And they are all fulfilled in, through, by, and for God in Christ Jesus to his people, both now and on into eternity. Jesus Christ died and was raised so that the people of God, you and I, might live in true freedom and live out God's purposes for us brought about by the Holy Spirit. And point number six, which is also number last, is this. Jesus Christ died and was raised so that we might live eternally and be transformed into his likeness, his character, his people, and live together by his spirit. Verse 18, which is also verse last of this chapter, and we all. He's making a distinction here. He's he's not saying, he's saying not just us apostles. Not just those of us who have met the Lord face to face, the risen Lord face to face, which Paul was the last to do, it seems, in scripture anyway. He's saying we, all of us, whoever is born by the Spirit of God, whoever has been bought by the blood of Jesus, we all, look at it now, with unveiled face, because Jesus has removed the veil of unbelief, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. I really like how the NIV said, in his image, it makes it very clear what he's talking about here. The same image, the same image, the, the image of Christ is the point. NIV does well here saying into his image. From one degree of glory to another. So there's a progression here that goes on in, in, the, in the life and being of individuals and of churches, I believe. For this comes from the Lord who is 
the Spirit. This is the work of Christ within each of us as individuals and within all of us as a local congregation of Jesus' disciples, assuming that we're a true church made up of true disciples, bought by Jesus' blood, reborn by his Spirit. Indeed, this is God's purpose for us in Christ Jesus. And the question we've faced, we're faced with this morning is this. Is your purpose God's purpose for your life? Is our purpose as a local expression of Jesus' church his purpose for us? Because from the scriptures, this is what we know. Jesus Christ died and was raised that we be transformed into his true people, not to continue or establish a new religion, but that we might be like him and that we might be his. Let's pray together. God, our Father, there are many moments in our Christian lives when we are engaged in work that you've given us to do, commissioned to do, appointed to do, called to do. And with Paul, we say, who is sufficient for these things? Preaching your gospel, teaching your word is one of those things that occurs recurrently. We are never in and of ourselves sufficient for any of these things. And yet, in this text that we just read, it makes clear that you make us sufficient for these things because you give us the means, the ability, and indeed you are right here with us, in us, and among us to do whatever it is that you call us to do, and you will not leave us nor forsake us. Help us, Lord, to be your people. Help us, Lord, to be authentic followers of Jesus Christ. Help us to adopt your purpose for our lives, for our ministry. Help us to be yours. Transform us by your word and your spirit, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My second favorite book in the Bible, or at least in the New Testament, is Galatians chapter 5. And it starts out this way. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Verse 13, you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness toward us. As we turn our faces, our bodies, our minds, our hearts, our ministry toward the celebration of the worst day and the best day in the history of the world, we thank you for your ongoing faithfulness. You weren't faithful just once. You are always faithful. You continue to be faithful. You'll be faithful tomorrow and all the way in through eternity. Please continue your work in us to transform us into your character, your image, and we'll give you all the glory.
and all the things. In Jesus' name, amen. See you next time.